first few chapters of the book of Genesis, you know that God made us to live in relationship with himself. And you also know the story of how Satan made his way into that garden, the Garden of Eden that God created for human beings to live in right relationship with God. And he broke that relationship between men and women and the one that made them. They turned away from God. They turned their backs on God. The tempter succeeded in his wiles. And as a result of it, not only did that impact their relationship with God, but once they turned away from God, they turned against each other. And really, that's the explanation for all the evil that's in the world. It is sin. Sin is the baseline explanation of all of these things. And as we read together, uh, or as we read together last week, we noticed that the church was undergoing a great deal of persecution. All of the troubles in the world comes as a result of Satan and his work, and the church in Thessalonica was undergoing particular, particular uh, persecution. And we learned last time that God has given us his son Jesus, and in his son Jesus we find our refuge and our strength in times of trouble, in times of persecution. And we learn that, that we never stand alone as long as we stand with him. For Jesus is our defender. He is our hiding place. He is our refuge. And so um, while those things are true, the Lord has given us another, another place to go, another place to run in times of trouble. And that is, that is the body of Christ. That is, he has given us each other. He has given us each other. And this morning, that's what uh, I'd like to focus on because that's what Paul focuses on in these verses. And so um, the, the lesson I think that this passage teaches us is that we must fight to stay together because everything in this world is designed to drive us apart. We must fight to stay together because everything in this world is designed to drive us apart. Now, this, this text teaches us two lessons about our relationships with one another. The first one is that God has made us for one another. God has made us for one another. We read in verses 17 through 18, it says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, many of you may have um, had an opportunity to go to see actual redwoods. Anybody ever see a redwood tree in person? Okay, we have a few. Anybody here from California or Oregon? Okay, we have a few hands. Yep. Uh, uh, so you, you know all about redwoods if you're from California or Oregon. They're the, they're the biggest trees in the world. Here's a, here's a picture of one redwood tree that you can actually drive your car through the middle of. Wouldn't that be cool experience to do that? And, and probably some of you have actually done that. You've probably driven through that tree. Uh, but that is, uh, that is just gives you an idea of the immensity, the size of those trees. Uh, the largest one discovered was discovered in 2006. It was 379 feet tall. Think about that for a minute. The largest redwood trees are 20 feet in diameter. Here's a picture of some kids uh, trying to hug a tree. That's a pretty hard tree to hug, isn't it? Just kind of get a, a size of its immensity, of its grandeur, of its huge size. 
But one of the weird things about redwood trees is that their roots only go down into the ground about five or six feet. So the question is, how could a tree that's as tall as a, as a 35-story building stand? And some of these redwood trees are up to 2,200 years old. Now, I don't know how they date them. Some say that they could even be older than that. But think about that. A 2,200-year-old tree, imagine the storms it's seen. Imagine the flooding that those trees have seen. Imagine all of the disasters over the last 2,000 years. And a tree that is that big in diameter and that tall, like a 35-story building with only a five or six foot into the ground root structure, how in the world does a tree like that stand? Well, the root structure of, of redwood trees um, aren't just, the only thing notable about them isn't that they're just five or six feet into the ground or in depth into the ground, but actually that they, they go out about 100 feet from the trunk of the tree laterally. So um, we look at this next picture, you'll see this is the root structure of redwood trees. And what redwood trees roots do is they go out from the, the base of the tree and in a redwood forest, they intertwine with all the roots of all the other trees. And the reason why they're amazingly strong and they're able to withstand all of those disasters for all of those centuries is because they have each other. The trees hold each other. And very much the same way God has given us the church, the body of Christ, and we hold one another through all of the storms that life brings us. And Paul shows this in a, in a beautiful way in his affection for these believers. And it's really important that we, when we read the Bible, that we don't just read the Bible to see the words on the page, but we actually, that we actually try to, to see the emotion with which the writers write and, and, and just try to, to embrace that and imagine that and to think about that. He uses powerful language in verses 17 and 18. He, um, he says in verse 17 that when he, was, when, when he departed from them, he calls it a, he, he says that he was torn away, and many of you know that he had to steal away at night. You know that the, he went into the city of Thessalonica, he preached the gospel in the city. People were coming to know Christ. Uh, a mob formed a riot against him. You can read it in Acts chapter 17. They hid Paul and Silas away. They got away. Another person named Jason, he had to post bond for them. Some people believe that the purpose of the bond wasn't so that it would guarantee your return to court. The reason why you posted bond was to guarantee that you would never return to the city. There is potential of that, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit uh, as it relates to Paul's story. But Paul says that that, that departure from them was, was, was akin to, to him being torn away. The word for torn away is actually... If we were to transliterate it into English, we would see that it's the word for orphan. It's the word for orphan. Paul is using a metaphor here to describe his feelings for him, for them. He is saying that he is like a, an, an orphan. That's how he feels. Now, he's used all kinds of metaphors to describe his relationship with them. He's described himself like a mother. Remember that? He's described himself like a father. He's described himself like a brother. 
But here he describes himself like an orphan. Now, when we think about orphans today, we think about it exclusively in terms of a, a, a child who loses their parents. But in the ancient world, you could be considered an orphan if you were a parent who lost your children. So when you had a significant relationship and you lost that relationship, you were kind of like an orphan. And Paul says that that is how he feels about these Thessalonian believers. He feels like an orphan. Now, there are a lot of you who are carrying big burdens because you have lost people that you love. As we prayed for one person this morning, we have, some, we have someone in our midst who just lost her husband. We have people in this place who have lost children. We have people in this place who's lost their spouse. We have people in this place who have lost people in their life that were close friends and significant. And for those of you who have gone through those things, you know how painful that is. Paul is comparing his departure from that city to being one of bereaved of someone that he deeply and desperately loves, and that's the church. Could you imagine, just for a moment, if, if we all develop this kind of love for one another in the body of Christ? I mean, can you imagine how transformational that would be if every one of us had the same heart for each other that Paul had for this church? Well, he's going to lay out for us some reasons why he feels this way. For, for Paul, even though they were out of sight, they were, never, they were never out of mind. We notice that he says in three different ways how, how deeply and desperately he misses them. He says, brothers, for a, a short time in person, not in heart, he says, first of all, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to see you. This word here for eagerly is a word that, that um, refers to, to, to working on something expeditiously, efficiently. Paul wanted to, to go back and spend time with them, but he couldn't. He was, he was trying to find an avenue where he could get there. He says, we, um, he says with, with great desire, this word here for desire uh, is, is only used about five times or so in the New Testament in a positive way. It's usually used of a covetous desire for something. When we covet something or we want something that we shouldn't have, that, that's the word that's often described for this. But Paul is describing this for his feeling for them, for something that he should have. He has this deep desire to be with them, to be with the people of God, and he is, he is brokenhearted that he can't be with them. And he says, because, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. And you have to remember that this letter, probably behind this letter, you have Paul, you have Silas, who was with him in the city when he was kicked out, and then Timothy, who he sent later. So they're, they're probably, all three of them are standing behind this letter. And so Paul is saying, he, he, he spells himself out of the, the, the rest, and he says, I, Paul, again and again. He tried over and over and over again to get to the city. But what was the problem? He states it plainly in verse 18. He says, Satan hindered us. Now, now, who is Satan? Satan is a personal being, but he stands for all of the forces that opposes God. And his name means, his name means adversary, prosecutor. He, he, we're told in Revelation chapter 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. He is somebody who attacks God's people. And so Paul says that Satan is the one who hindered us. 
Now, this word for hinder is a military term. For those of you who are military people, you'll appreciate that. Paul is, is invoking this military idea. And when there was a, a defending nation, let's say a defending army, what they would do, if they knew that an attacking army was coming, they would often tear up the road in front of the enemy army to keep them from having a free shot at them. And that is the word here for hindered. So what Paul is saying is, is that Satan has prevented him from going to the city of Thessalonica by, by uh, tearing up the road in front of him. And, and the question is, 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 how is it that Satan hindered him? What obstacles was Satan putting before him? And lots of people have lots of guesses at what it could be. It could be, remember Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that he had the battle with? Some people think it was that. Some people think that maybe because he was in Corinth and you know what a mess the Corinthian church was, if you don't know what a mess it was, just read 1 Corinthians, you will see what a mess it was. Some people think that Paul had so many things to deal with in the church at Corinth that he couldn't go back. Or perhaps it was that bond that Jason put up for him. If Paul and Silas returned to the city, uh, then Jason would have to repay, Jason would lose that money and perhaps it was such a large amount that the church couldn't afford to make up for it, so Paul could not go back. We don't really know the reason why he couldn't go back, but one of the things that we're told here is that Satan hindered them again and again. Now, Satan does that all the time. Satan wishes to hinder the, the gospel as it goes forth. Satan is always trying to block the pathway of God's work in the world. But, but I want to leave you with something that's really encouraging here. I don't know how many of you have ever had the chance to read the confessions of Augustine. Augustine was an early church father. He wrote these, conversion, uh, the, these confessions. It's the story of how he came to know the Lord. He had a godly mother, and she, and she wanted him to become a follower of Jesus, but he was this, this brilliant son of hers. He was a scholar. He was a scholar, scholar. And he turned to all kinds of philosophies that stood in, in opposition to his mother's faith. And he rejected the faith and he lived the most licentious life he could possibly live. And then one occasion, he was from Africa. Uh, he, he was now going to go to what is now Italy. He was going to go to Milan. He was going to teach in Milan. And his mother didn't want him to go. She was worried about what he would find on the other side. He would have these opportunities for more licentious living there. And so she prayed and prayed and prayed that her son would not go to that city. She asked God, she begged God to, to not let him go. He talks about how his mother filled up the, the, the I, I believe, I, maybe I, I don't want to quote wrongly, but, but, but she, just, she just constantly cried over, over his situation and, and she would go to church twice a day and she was begging God not to let him go. And finally, he made arrangements and he went over to Milan. And one of the points that he made in his book is that sometimes God says no because he wants to give us a greater yes. So God said no to his mother and he ended up going to Milan, but it was in Milan that he met Ambrose, and it was in Milan that he became a follower of Christ. And so sometimes God says no, and it appears as if Satan has won, but God always has the victory. God's yes always overrides Satan's no. As much as Satan might plot and plan, God always has the victory. But we can see how Satan was hindering his access to that city. Well, number two, 
Number two, so first of all, God has made us for one another. And number two, our future is bound up together. Our future is bound up together. We read in verses 19 through 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, you'll remember this, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's going to come a day where we will all stand before the Lord and we will answer for our lives, for the way that we lived our lives. Now, I have good news for you who follow Jesus. Good news for you. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. We turned our back on God. Our relationship with God was severed because of our sin. But what God did was he sent his son as a sin bearer for us. He died on the cross for our sins so that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our sin is transferred to him. The wrath of God was poured out in him for our sin. And through faith in him, his righteousness was given to us so that when we stand in his presence, he looks at us not through these sin-soiled bodies that we have, but he will look at us through the righteousness of Jesus. We are forgiven. If you are a child of God, you will never suffer the wrath of God. Plain and simple, what a blessing. If you don't know the Lord, one day you're going to have to stand for your, and answer for your rebellion against God. And the punishment for that is eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. I pray that there's not a single person in this place who, who, who's, who's never come to a place where you've turned from your sin and trusted him because he loves you. He sent his son to rescue you and to save you and to give you new life. But even for us Christians, even for us Christians who know the Lord, there's going to be an accounting for our life. And Paul always lived with the end in mind. I love when you see a a young person who is really responsible and they're thinking about the future and what are they doing there. Any chance that they get, maybe they're storing away a little bit here and there, thinking about their retirement someday. They realize that probably there will, be, there will come a time in their life where they won't be able to work, and so they start thinking about that when they're young, and it starts to affect their decisions, and maybe they don't go and, and spend as frivolously because they know that they need to save up for a time in the future. Well, anyone like that is thinking about times ahead. When Paul thought about times ahead, he didn't just think about the time maybe where he wouldn't be able to physically do any work as a tent maker or anything like that. What Paul's mind was fixed on was eternity. Everything that he did in this life, it, he, he thought of it in terms of how that, how that would affect uh, what it would be like on the day when he stood before the Lord. And, and this, this passage in front of us is a, is a beautiful picture of that, of his priorities, of his life, those things that were important to him. Just want to think about this for one minute, this idea, and that is, is um, one day you're going to see Jesus. One day you're going to lay eyes on Jesus. Remember what um, the Apostle John said in John 1.1, he, now he's looking back on his relationship with the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's describing Jesus. Think about that. That which we have heard. He heard the voice of Jesus. Can you imagine that? 
what that would be like. Imagine as an old man writing those books, John, uh, in his mind's eye, he went back and would hear Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, and probably longed to hear his voice. Or um, imagine what it would have been like to have seen Jesus. None of, us, none of us know what Jesus looked like, but John knew what Jesus looked like. And, and notice how, how he says that he, he, he touched with our hands. None of us have ever touched Jesus with our hands, but John did. And think about it. One day, one day you and I will hear his voice. One day we will see him. One day we will touch him. And what will that day be like? Sometimes we get so caught up in this world that we fail to think about that reality. We think um, it's like the, like the parent, like the parent who goes to the park and sitting there in the park bench at the park and somebody sits next to that parent and says, enjoy these days, these are the best days of your life. And the other person who said it is older and more advanced in years and somebody who uh, knows enough to tell them that. And that parent is there, they've got their kids everywhere, running around, crying, pulling out their hair. Uh, the kids are fighting with each other, yelling at each other, crying. They're carrying around both, you know, maybe two car seats and, and they're tired, they're not getting sleep at night and, uh, and they're irritable and they say, they say, enjoy, enjoy these days? But then, but then that parent years later, is walking around their house and they see those pictures. They see those little ones at that age and their mind goes back to those days and they say, I wish, I wish I could, I could go there just one more day, just one more day to see those little ones the way that they are. Sometimes when we're in the midst of life and all of the stresses of life and all of the troubles of life, we think to ourselves that it's going to be this way forever. But what the Word of God is telling us is that it's not going to be this way forever. There's going to come a day where our reality will be, will, will be transformed in a way that we cannot imagine now. There will come a day when we will, we will actually enter the presence of Jesus Christ, and we will, we will hear him, we will see him, we will touch him. And how the priorities of this life, the things that we think are so important today, will seem so meaningless compared to those things that are eternal and have true weight and true value. We see this. This is what drove Paul, he says in verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? The word there for coming is the word parousia. It's the word that uh, Paul commonly uses and the Bible commonly uses. It talks about the return of Jesus. But this word has a lot of, has a lot of meaning uh, beyond the, the biblical story. It's a, it's a word that was chosen for a particular reason. Uh, when, a, when a powerful king would visit a city... His coming was called the parousia. So there's a story about how 
how uh, Nero, Emperor Nero visited a particular city. It was called the Parousia of Nero. Or there was another one of Emperor Hadrian. He did the same thing. And there are these stories where great king would go to a city and the city would be uh, all, all ablaze trying to get everything into order for the coming of the king. It's sort of like when, uh, when you or I find out that somebody's coming over to our house. All of a sudden, what do we do? We work scrubbing the bathroom. We work scrubbing the floors. We clean everything up. We want to make everything look perfect because we, we hope that when they get there, they'll think that we live like that all the time. <laughs> That's what they would do when a king would come. It was a big deal. And when the, when the king or the emperor would come into the city, the town would be there and they would present to the king a gift. They would present to the king a gift. And what is the gift that Paul hopes to present to the king when he sees him? That he hopes to present to the Lord when he sees him. And we see that in four words in verse 19. Just just listen to how tenderly he speaks of them. I hope that as you hear the way that Paul speaks so tenderly about the body of Christ in this book, you will see how important the body of Christ is and how tenderly God wants us to think of each other. He says, is it not you? Is it not you? You see, what Paul hopes to present to the Lord on the day that he sees him are these Thessalonian Christians. These are people that he proclaimed the gospel to, that came to Christ through his ministry. He nurtured them as much as he could. When he was sent out of the city, he sent back Timothy to help them along in their faith. And on that day, all he looks forward to is presenting them to Christ. What a beautiful picture. But also the king, the king would present a gift to those people. And we notice here that he refers to a crown of boasting. It's a, a, a crown was a laurel that would be presented to athletes as they ran in races. And Paul uses imagery from athletics all the time through his letters. He must have been a sports fan. And so we have the question, what would be Paul's crown of boasting? Well, I think the answer is the same. Is it not you? says in verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. So in this present life, in this present life, now Christ is his ultimate joy, we know that. But in this present life, they are his joy. And we know that God is his glory, right? But in the life to come, they are his glory. Think about that. Think about the fact that, that what we are doing in the body of Christ, now together with one another, is something that will have significance for all eternity. Look at the value of of pouring ourselves into one another for his cause, because one day we will all stand together with him. Do you know that on that day of judgment? You and I, when we stand before him, you and I, we will stand together before Christ. When we give account. So how do we stay together when the world works with all of its might to push us apart? 
I can't throw the applications up for you because I changed my applications this morning. I'm sorry about that. And I forgot to change it on the PowerPoint. Number one, remember that we have one Savior. Remember that we have one Savior who is Jesus Christ. We have one Savior who is Jesus Christ. When you think of a wedding, weddings can be so complicated, right? Any of you who have ever been through a wedding, you know this. You have the one level, you have all the personalities, right, involved in a wedding. You have, you have uh, uh, grandma, grandpa, grandmas and grandpas. You have mothers-in-law, you have fathers-in-law. You have all kinds of stress that can go into a wedding just before you even get to the day of it. In fact, some people say that the most stressful week of your life might be that week leading up to your wedding. But then when you get there, when you get to the actual day, after all of the drama that sometimes you'll find <laughs> surrounding a wedding, and hopefully the, there's no drama ever in any of your family lives, um, <laughs> once you get there, you, you have people looking in, other, in different directions, and, and, uh, and how, do you, how do you keep everyone on the same page? How do you keep everyone on the same page in a wedding? Like before it starts, you, you might have folks who are sitting together, they're waiting for the wedding to start, usually late. And uh, everybody's talking to each other, and then all of a sudden, the, 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 the groom and the groomsmen, they come out, and they, they're there, and that gives some kind of focal point for people, but people continue to talk, and you have the musicians trying to get in sync with one another as, as this is all happening, and, and, then, um, and then things start to pull together a little bit. You have a, a ring bearer who comes down, and sometimes the ring bearer doesn't make it all the way down. Or sometimes a ring bearer thinks that they're competing in the Olympics and they make it down really fast. And, and then uh, the ring bearer takes his little spot and, and uh, the, the flower girl might be very similar to the ring bearer. And then you have the, you have the bridesmaids that come down when the bridesmaids are there. Uh, you, you have a, a little more focus. Sometimes the bridesmaids are looking at the groomsmen and people... Uh, who are sitting or maybe family members of the bridesmaids. They're kind of going back and forth, and somebody's trying to figure out how to calm down the ring bearer. And, and, uh, and, then, and then all of a sudden, um, at least here, when we have them here, everything changes in a moment. Now, the Lord is the focus of a wedding, right? But the visible focus, the true focus is the Lord, but the visible focus, the physical focus, is the bride. Then uh, you look back to the back of the, the, the sanctuary and all of a sudden the doors fly open. The bride steps into the threshold. And then the mother of the bride stands up. She's looking at the bride. And as soon as the mother stands up and she looks at the bride, everyone else rises and they look at the bride. And the way that the wedding party stays together the rest of the time is there's an old rule. Everybody just keep your eye on the bride, and if you keep your eye on the bride, everybody will be where they're supposed to be at each juncture of the wedding ceremony. Well, it's the same way in our relationship with Christ, with each other, within the body of Christ. How does a church stay healthy? Well, each one of us, God calls us to fix our eyes on Christ. And when we fix our eyes on Christ, immediately we will not only just be in tune with him, but we will then be in tune with each other. 
And this is the beauty of the body of Christ. This is why the body of Christ is unlike anything in all the world. And if, and if you have in the midst of a congregation where you see it being torn apart and you see, you see uh, uh, sheep being scattered one way and another way, you can be sure that there's someone somewhere in that situation who's taken their eyes or focal point off of Christ and they have put it somewhere else. What keeps us unified and what keeps us healthy as a people is to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to remember that, that this life is, is, is in some ways just a, a preparation for the life to come where we will be with him forever and ever and ever. And so we must keep our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to remember is that we have one story and that's the gospel. We have one story, and that's the gospel. And the gospel is a beautiful message. It's a humbling message. The gospel says to me that in my own ability, I have no way to reconcile myself to God so that I need a mediator. I need someone else because I am a sinful person. That mediator is perfect. I am needy. He is perfect. And when I come to him and when I cry out to him and when I turn away from my sin and my self-centeredness and, and all of the things that goes with it and I place my faith in Jesus Christ, he transforms me. He makes me new. He makes me a new creation. He transforms me from the inside out. The gospel message is a beautiful thing, and the gospel message means that if, if I do something that offends my brother or sister, guess what I need to do? I need to go to them. I need to confess what I've done. I need to get that right. What happens if somebody else does something that's offensive to us, and they, they, they come to us, and they, 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 they point that out? Do we have a right to hold a grudge against them? Absolutely not. If, if God has forgiven me for all of that, how can I hold a grudge against my brother or sister in Christ who's only done this? Once we, once we take stock of our, of our sin and our true position before the Lord, we come to the realization that we have no right to be uh, self-righteous. And that keeps us in that relationship with each other in humility, and it's a beautiful thing. I love how Paul talks about this, how on that day of judgment, what, what will he do on the day when he stands before the Lord and he gives an account for his life? What will he do? He's going to present to the Lord the Thessalonian believers. And you know, Paul led a lot of people to Christ. And some people, like the Pauls of the world or the Billy Grahams of the world, they've, they've led many, many, many countless people to Christ. But most of us have only led a few. But I want you to know on that day, can you imagine what that day will be like? When you are there in the presence of Jesus Christ, standing along, maybe a son or a daughter, maybe a nephew or a niece, maybe a friend, standing alongside a friend and Jesus wants you to give an account and you say, there's my crown of boasting. There's my, there's my glory and joy. What a beautiful thing that will be to stand next to them. How beautiful and marvelous that is in the sight of God. Maybe there's, maybe there's um, maybe some who are sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never, I've never led someone to Christ. I've never had that opportunity to, to share the gospel and point someone to Jesus where they came to saving faith. 
Make that part of your prayer life. Say, Lord, would you give me one? Would you give me one person so that on that day when I stand before you, when I stand before you, I will, I will have someone there that I can, I will, I will be able to say, I will say, I, I pointed them to you. They came to faith in you. Now, we can't, we can't change a heart, can we? Only God can change a heart. But in some measure, God, God allowed Paul to participate in, in what he did in their lives. And in the same way, God allows us to participate in what he's doing in others' lives so that on that day, the, the greatest treasure we will be will not be any of the things that we've amassed or any of the achievements we've made or the uh, high position we held in our work or any of those things. It will be those people that have been affected for the gospel. And that's why Paul has this deep love and passion for them. And he looks forward to that day when he sees them. My first ministry out of school, I was, I was a chaplain. I was a chaplain in this very large um, uh, retirement uh, facility where we had, um, we had people who had needed nursing care. We had people who needed memory care. We had assisted living. We had the whole thing to independent living. We had the whole deal. It was this, it was this big place. And I remember on the first day, uh, going through, one of the directors was walking me through this, this place, and we came, to a, we came to a room. There was an open door, and there was, a, there was a man working in the room, one of the guys in the maintenance crew. He was working in there. And uh, I, I stopped, and I asked the director. I said, what's he doing in there? How come he's, he's going through this person's stuff? And there, were, there was, a, I remember vividly, there was a big sombrero on the wall. I think that the person had gotten from Mexico. There were all kinds of pictures on the wall. There were, there were all these special things that were associated with the person's memory. And, uh, and the maintenance guy was taking that stuff, and he was just tossing them in the garbage. Here are the most precious things that this person had in this life. Just tossing them in the garbage. And I said, why is he just throwing that stuff in the garbage? And a simple answer to me was, well, there was really no one in the world who cared enough to want anything that she left behind. And all of a sudden, it gave me a picture. I mean, what are we really living for? Are we living for that stuff that will ultimately end up in the, in the trash? Or are we living for that which is eternal? One of the lessons that I learned there, you know, there were a lot of people who lived and loved and cared for people. And you would see so often their lives were full of people. They poured their life into people and their lives were full of people. But then you saw people who lived their life for themselves Sometimes you'd go into a particular room. I'm sure you've seen it. One side of the room was full of pictures. There's a, there a woman who was a favorite aunt of her, all of her nieces and nephews. And, and her wall was decorated with all kinds of pictures everywhere from her nieces and nephews. And her room was so full of love, you wouldn't believe it. And then on the other side of that room was another person there. And there was nothing on the wall. There was, it was stark. Never got one visitor ever, never, ever. The one person lived for herself. The other one poured her life into others. And when it came to the end of their lives, you could see the difference. 
You see, if we live our lives simply for ourselves, when we get to the end of it, that's all we're going to have. Is that really what you want? How God offers us so much more through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Where God reconciles us through his son, Jesus, to himself. And as a consequence of that relationship with him, it impacts every relationship in our life. We'll begin to care about other people. We'll begin to love our neighbor as ourselves because we love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this will, this will carry over into every part of our life. And we will, we will pour ourselves into others. And we will develop this kind of love for others. And we will then on one day, we will stand in the presence of the living king of kings. And we will offer one another to him. Which vision for your life do you want? God calls each of us to make a decision. Will you turn to him and trust him and experience new life? Or will you continue down the road that you're going? And in the end, you will have exactly what you want, which is just yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you this morning.